All right, good morning, everyone. Let's go ahead and get started with our Sunday school class. It's great to see everybody out here this morning. Uh, so let's just open up with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we counted a privilege and a blessing to be back into your house this morning, to fellowship with one another, uh, to uh, kind of catch up on our week, and, and uh, also to get ready to feast at your table. And Lord, the table and the spread that you have set before us is like none other, and it can satisfy like none other. The world is like Chinese food. You partake of the world, and an hour later, you're hungry again. But Lord, when we feast off of your word, it's, it's something that we can feed upon throughout the entire week, and we can just chew on it and ruminate on it and, and, and gather so much more substance from it than we can any other thing in this world. So Lord, I pray that you would just quieten our hearts and our minds, and we invite the Holy Spirit to come and move among our hearts and minds to open us up to make our hearts and minds fertile soil for the seed of your word. Help us, Lord, to know what your word is trying to, to say, past, present, and future, and how we can uh, understand it and assimilate it and apply it to our lives so we can carry it out. And Lord, we love you and praise you and ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. All right, so we took kind of a little break in our Sunday school lessons. Usually we've been going chapter by chapter, and today we're in Genesis 33. But because uh, of the whole Jacob and Esau contention, I thought it would be good to just kind of take a little break from the chapter narrative and kind of delve into the characteristics of Jacob and Esau. And as we were studying Jacob and Esau, we talked about how Esau was a toxic person. And we talked about toxic people one week. The next week, we talked about somebody having a Messiah complex. And uh, then the last week, we talked about somebody having a martyr complex and related them back to Esau as well as other uh, characters within Scripture. And so now we're back on track with the, uh, with the, with the chapter narrative. So in chapter 33, uh, we're at the part where Jacob meets up with Esau after years and years and years of being apart from each other. So let's just take the first verse. It says, Then Jacob glanced up and saw... And behold, there was Esau coming. Now, could you just imagine, you know, your servants just come back from kind of spying out the land and sending all these gifts before him to kind of maybe soften Esau's heart, butter him up for this meeting that he, was, that he knew he was destined to have. And then all of a sudden, you know, his, his, uh, his servants come back and say, yeah, Esau's on his way and he's got 400 men. And so Jacob looks up and he sees the dust clouds on the horizon and knowing that, you know, because such of a large dust cloud that, yeah, his servants are probably right. It's not just Esau, it's 400 men. So it says, then Jacob glanced up and saw and behold, there was Esau coming and 400 men with him. Do you imagine the fear that was probably struck in Jacob's heart? Not knowing if, if Esau was going to be a friend or a foe, not knowing if those gifts that he sent in ahead of him was enough to uh, pave the way to, to, for Esau to show Jacob favor. Because after all, we know that Esau was holding a deep-seated grudge, not just, I hate this guy, not just, I wish him ill, not just, I'm going to throw a monkey wrench every chance I get into this guy's life. It was such a vehement grudge and hatred that Esau had in mind to kill Jacob. He's like, I hate this guy so much, I don't even want him on the face of the earth. 
So then Jacob glanced up and saw, and behold, there was Esau coming and 400 men with him. So Esau was sort of like a, kind of like a tribal ruler. Back in those times, you, when people lived a nomadic life, they lived in the desert and they had their families and the families were large. Usually it was more than one wife and you know there was probably uh, two or three dozen children. And on top of that, in order to function as a nomadic people, you had to have a lot of slaves and or a lot of hired servants to be able to take care of the sheep and the cattle and to help babysit and to help provide food for such a large family and prepare meals. And not only that, you, you also had to take some of these slaves and servants and train them militarily because living as a nomadic people, you never knew who was going to be traveling around you and if somebody would have maybe seen you as a soft target and would try to steal your sheep or your cattle or attack your family so you had to protect yourself so these 400 men that esau had uh was was trained in the art of warfare so the question comes to mind okay is esau coming as a friend or a foe is these 400 guys a welcoming committee or are they an army to decimate and likely jacob hedged his bets on esau being a foe because of the grudge regarding the birthright and the blessing that we find uh, in Genesis chapter 27 and verse 36, which reads, this is Esau speaking, is this why his name is, is Jacob? Since he tricked me twice already, my birthright he's taken, and look, now he's taken my blessing. So Esau's head was all messed up. Jacob did not cheat or trick Esau out of his birthright. You know, he willingly and knowingly gave away his birthright for a pot of lentil stew. So it was a fair, fair trade. It was fair and square. It was, it was, the business was conducted uh, in, in the, the uh, vein of, of the traditional Middle Eastern way of conducting business. So there's no, no deceit there. Now, yeah, you can kind of make the argument that there was a little deceit uh, in, in, in the blessing, but really the blessing wasn't Esau's to begin with because God prophesied and, and gave Rebekah and Isaac this, this uh, um, uh, forewarning saying the older will serve the younger. Because traditionally, the oldest got the blessing, got the birthright, got the inheritance, was the patriarch of the family uh, after the older patriarch passed off the scene. So Esau was pretty much to get it all, but God said, no, 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 it's going to be the older serve the younger. Jacob was, or uh, uh, Isaac was going to stick with tradition and make Esau because he was burly, he was stronger, he had the prowess, and uh, maybe he didn't have as much confidence in Jacob because Jacob was more of a scholarly man uh, among the tents. But so as to uh, do right by God and, uh, and to, to ensure uh, that uh, the blessing would be imparted to Jacob, Rebekah said, okay, son, you know, get Esau's clothes and this, this you know, kid that I just killed, this young goat that I just killed, take the skins and put them on you. And so you can uh, pass yourself off as Esau and therefore get the blessing. And Jacob was like, I don't want any part of this. I don't want to deceive my father. But you, children obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. And so his mother says, just do as I say. Don't worry about any repercussions or any curses that are going to come up on you. May they fall upon me because I'm asking you to do this. So back to, to verse 1, we see Esau coming with 400 men. Jacob is hedging his bets. 
that it's not for good, good purposes. So he's scared. And so the verse goes on to say, so he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. Verses, uh, th- verse two and three, he put the female servants and their children first, then Leah and her children behind them, then Rachel and Joseph behind them. But he himself passed on ahead of them and bowed to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. So Jacob places his family in a very specific order from least of importance to greatest of importance. And unfortunately, this showed favoritism and it left a lasting mark on the rest of his children. So, you know, he kind of saved the best for last. Whereas Leah and her children should have took prominence because Leah was the one who bore the firstborn son of Jacob. Leah was the one that was unloved. Her children didn't have as much favor in the eyes of Jacob as Rachel and Joseph did. And so, you know, he, uh, he, he puts Rachel and Joseph last because he favored them so much. When in fact, it should have been Leah and her children because they were the ones that were supposed to carry on the patriarchal line. If, if Esau was going to attack and start killing off, he should have killed off the concubine and their children first. And then he should have, uh, um, you know, killed off Rachel and Joseph uh, in hopes that the firstborn would have survived. So Jacob had his priorities messed up, and he showed his hand and his cards to his family. And by putting the, the families into groups of least of importance to greatest, this, uh, I think, early on caused uh, um, a grudge with the children and as well as with the wives and the concubine because of the favoritism that was shown. And this left a lasting mark on the boys because, after all, they were so jealous of Joseph, they ended up selling Joseph into slavery, as we'll read later on in the passages. So the concubines and their children were in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. So he saved the best for last. And then it says that Jacob bowed seven times uh, before, before Esau. Now, seven is a very important number. We've got, you know, it takes seven days to make a week. And when you have seven days, it's a complete week. It's one week. So seven represents completion. Seven represents a cycle. And so uh, Jacob, bowing down seven times before Esau, sent the message, signaled to Esau that Jacob was in complete submission to Esau. So this was kind of a reversal of the blessing where the older would serve the younger. So if we go back to Genesis 27 and uh, go to verse 39, 27:39. where are you at here? Okay, it says, Then Isaac his father said to him, and this is talking to Esau, Behold, away from the land's fatness shall your dwelling be, away from the dew of the sky above. By your sword you shall live, and your brother shall, ser- shall you serve. So that's, in, that's following in line with the prophecy that God gave Rebekah and Isaac before the twins were even born. It says, you, um, uh, by your sword you shall live, and your brother uh, shall you serve. But, 
So there was an escape clause, a loophole in this blessing that Isaac gave to Esau. But when you tear yourself loose, you will tear his yoke off your neck. So Isaac provides within his blessing that, yes, you know, the older is going to serve the younger. Yes, Jacob's going to be ahead of you. He's going to be the patriarch. He's got the inheritance. He's got the birthright. He's got the blessing. But this isn't the way it's always going to be. One day you're going to shake Jacob's yoke off your neck and you will be free of him. And so this is kind of a, a, a prophetic foreshadowing of that with Jacob bowing down seven times in complete submission to Esau. Jacob was saying, I, you've got 400 men, I've got nobody. I left Uncle Laban with the clothes that are on my back and what you know, sheep and cattle that I have. That's all that I have. I don't even have enough servants to have a little small army of my own. So you've got, you've got the home field advantage. You've got the numerics uh, and the weaponry advantage on your side. So I have no choice but to submit to you, hoping that you will spare my life and that of my, of my family. So verse 4 says, But Esau ran to meet him, hugged him, fell on his neck, and kissed him, and they wept. Now we read that in the English, and we're like, Oh, isn't that sweet? Oh, these two brothers are making up. But is that what's really going on here? The Hebrew is a very tricky language, and it's a very veiled language, and it, and it brings out so much more richer meaning in the original language of the Hebrew that doesn't always translate to, to the English when you read it. So when you read this, you kind of say, oh, well, yeah, Esau got buttered up enough, and he's forgiven Jacob. After all, you know, they're hugging each other, and they're kissing each other, and they're weeping. They're happy to see each other. I don't really think that that's what the case is. I think this is a, is a big show. I think this is a big show, like kind of like politics. You know, back when, back when um, adultery was considered a bad thing, you'll have politicians that were caught in sex scandals, and they'll come before and, you know, they'll start crying and weeping, and they'll say, I'm sorry, and I did wrong, and blah, 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 and please forgive me, and all this kind of stuff. They weren't sorry. They're just sorry they got caught, right? So, um, you know, I think that this is kind of a, a, like a political thing where this is just a show, not only with Esau, but with Jacob as well. So when you study what the rabbis and sages say about this, um, we understand deeper what this verse means. But Esau ran to meet him, hugged him, fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. So, in, in a way, this was Esau's way of, of deceiving the deceiver. Because after all, Jacob means deceiver, means one who catches the heel, means surplanter. And Esau felt like he got the short end of the stick. He got the short straw because he was, you know, he, 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 he didn't get the birthright. He didn't get the blessing. He didn't get the inheritance. He wasn't the patriarch or leader. So this was kind of Esau's way of, of pulling a ruse off on Jacob. Now, this Hebrew word that is translated in the English, and some translation says hug or embrace. It's interesting what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew actually means to clasp. It means to fold. That doesn't sound, that doesn't give me the warm and fuzzies. That doesn't sound like a hug as we know a hug. To clasp, to fold. You know what it reminds me of? What, what do you see that folds? Reminds me of a bear trap. A bear trap folds. A bear trap clasps. So I don't think this hug was a, was a, 
you know, nice, oh, I missed you, brother, I forgive you, brother kind of hug. It says that he hugged, he embraced, means to clasp, means to fold in on. So this was not a true hug, but by assertion, but this, this symbolized assertion of dominance. And, you know, have you ever seen two male dogs? This is going to get a little gross here, but, you know, sometimes you'll see one male dog dominate another by getting behind the dog, right? You, you, all, you all know where I'm going with this. It's not that he's trying to reproduce with this male dog. He's, he's, he's demonstrating his dominance over that dog. I'm the alpha male. I am over you. So the picture that this Hebrew word to hug or to embrace is bringing across is that this is Esau asserting his dominance. I'm folding in on you. I'm clasping you in such a way that your hands cannot move. So you can't punch me. You can't scratch me. You can't do anything. I'm giving you a bear hug and incapacitating you. Not only that, I'm patting you down, making sure you don't have any weapons because I don't want you to shank me. That's the picture that this Hebrew word is, is bringing across here. And it says that he, he, um, Esau ran to him, hugged him, and fell on his neck. It wasn't a falling on the neck like, weak in the knees, I'm so glad to see you, oh, collapsing and crying, and, and oh, this is a great family reunion. This Hebrew word fell means to be tackled. It means to overthrow. When you're watching MMA, this is kind of the boring part of the fight. It's really great when you see these guys duking and slugging it out and kicking each other. But when they're on the ground, what's called ground and pound, and they're wrestling with each other, or they're up against the fence wrestling with each other, it's kind of boring. You're like, oh, man, come on. I want to see some action. But there is a strategic thing that's going on when these two men are grappling on the ground. The one that's on top is asserting dominance for one, but he's wearing the other guy down because the guy that's on the bottom has the weight of that fighter upon him. And the more he struggles, the more energy he's exuding to where he's weakening himself. And so this is kind of the picture the Hebrew paints is that he fell on him. In other words, he is wearing him down. Uh, so it means to tackle or to overthrow. So it says that he, he, he hugged him, he fell on his neck, and he kissed him. This word kiss is interesting. It means, oh, back to the neck thing. There's one thing I forgot to mention about the neck. Like uh, when a mother is moving her pups, she'll grab them by the scruff of the neck, right, and move them. Because when you grab on the back of the neck, the puppy can't fight back, can't resist. Right, so this is kind of the picture that this neck thing is painting. And, and this is where predators attack. So if a wolf is going to come behind a predator, or a lion is gonna come behind a predator, a lion is gonna come behind a gazelle, or a wolf is gonna come behind a sheep or something like that, the first place they attack is they bite the back of the neck, hoping to break the spinal cord, hoping to incapacitate their victim so they can easily carry them off without a fuss. These are the Hebraic pictures that these words are painting because there's other Hebrew words for hug and embrace. There's other Hebrew words for fell. There's other Hebrew words that would paint a more fuzzy picture. But that's not the picture the Hebrew's painting here. We're seeing Esau asserting dominance over Jacob. And so it says that he kissed him. This word kiss can mean to fasten. It means to rule. When you have a wolf attacking a sheep and biting the neck of a sheep, he is fastening his fangs upon him, and he's ruling that sheep. That sheep can't do anything. So, and it kind of reminds me of a vampire. 
That's how a vampire gets their victims is they go for the neck, right? Go for the jugular. That is one of the main arteries. And if you can sever the spinal cord or the jugular, the victim has no chance. Now, the rabbis say that Esau embraced Jacob like a wolf embraces his prey. And it says they wept. Esau wept for one reason. Jacob wept for a completely different reason. This word wept means to mourn or to lament. Esau lamented because he knew that God would not allow him to harm Jacob, and he would never achieve the desired, uh, the desired dominance or freedom that he wanted to have over Jacob. So no matter how hard Esau tried to dominate and destroy Jacob, God was not going to allow this to happen. Whereas Jacob wept for a different reason. He wept because he feared Esau. He feared that Esau just might harm him and, and just might cut off his family line. So this reveals a fear within Jacob and a lack of trust in God in Jacob. Because... Jacob had a struggle with Laban and had a struggle with his brother. He was always, you know, paranoid and looking over his shoulder. He probably had a form of PTSD. So it was taking a while for him to develop this trust relationship with the God of Israel, with, with the one true God. We see the same thing happen with Abraham. Abraham was very fearful when he started out on his journey, when he started out with his fresh relationship with God. He made a lot of mistakes based on fear, but later on, we see Abraham completely and totally uh, and undeniably trust God so much that he's willing to sacrifice his son. So uh, we see that Jacob will end up trusting God in that same way. But right now, because of the circumstances, he's very fearful and doesn't trust God as much as he should. So this was a false reconciliation. It was kind of a show for the family so that the family would not worry. You know, a lot of times when somebody breaks into a home and it's a hostage situation and there's little kids involved, sometimes the, the perpetrator and the hostage will kind of play nice just so the children won't cry, just so the wife won't get too worried. Oh, we're just having a friendly discussion. You know, oh, you know, oh this is a guy that I used to go to school with. Or just, you know, whatever, a show for the family to kind of make them feel good. And this is kind of what it was. So moving on to verse 5. This is talking about Esau here. It says, His eyes glanced up, and he saw the women and children and said, Who are these with you? I think Esau knew, but I think he was just wanting to make sure that these people who were who they were. Because if he intended on harming them or killing them, he wanted to make sure he had the right victims. Knowing that Jacob was, was very resourceful, knowing that his name meant deceiver, this could have been a surrogate family. It could have been a bunch of his servants disguised or dressed up as his family. And if he ended up killing them and the family was disguised as the servants, the family would have been saved. So I think Esau is just kind of making sure. He knew who they were, but he's just making sure. Who are these with you? The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Notice how Jacob is always catering and placating to Esau. He says that God has graciously give your servant. I'm your servant, Esau. You're my older brother. You know, I submit, I bow to you. Then the female servants approached, they and their children, and bowed down. Another gesture of total submission and surrender. Leah also approached along with her children, and they bowed down. And finally, Joseph and Rachel approached and bowed down. What do you mean by this whole caravan that I met? 
So he said, to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. He's calling Esau his Lord. He's calling Esau his master. But Esau said, I have plenty, O my brother. Do keep all that belongs to you. This, we even do this today. If somebody's giving you a gift, oh, no, 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 I could never take that. But you know you're going to take it in the end because you don't want to offend the person. And it's just the courteous right thing to do. But it's that, it's that uh, culturally expected humility that we're supposed to show. We're supposed to deny the gift at least two or three times. And then finally, oh, well, shucks. Okay, I'll take it. it that, that's the way it was in the Middle East. And we even do that here in the West today. And that's what was Esau was doing. He had full intentions of taking Jacob's gifts. Because it's like, you know what? This is tribute. I rule you. I'm your older brother. I deserve this. You stole this from me. All this that you got is really mine anyway. So of course I'm going to take it. Because that's all Esau cared about was material things. He didn't care about spiritual things. He didn't care about familial responsibility because he gave away his birthright, sold his birthright, and he was and 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 you know he was uh, he didn't get the blessing. He didn't care about those things. He just cared about stuff. But Esau said, I have plenty, O my brother. Do keep all that belongs to you. Yet Jacob said, no, please. If I have found favor in your eyes, then you will take my offering from my hand. For this reason, I have seen your face, and it is like seeing the face of God. Oh, just notice how Jacob is buttering Esau up. He called him, he called him Lord. He called him master. He called himself his uh, Esau's servant. And now he's saying, seeing you is like seeing the face of God. Now, don't get too worried about that because that word God is the Hebrew word Elohim. It, it, it's not necessarily right to translate it God in all different circumstances because the word Elohim means it could mean judge, depending on the context. Basically, it, it, it's, it's meaning that somebody is a ruler. It's just another way of Jacob saying that um, Esau, you are my master and I am your servant. Seeing you is like seeing the face of God or seeing you is like seeing the face of a supernatural being or seeing the face of a ruler, a king, a judge. Uh, so he, he said, uh, no, please, if I have found favor in your eyes, then you will take my offering from my hand. For this reason, I have seen your face, and it is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please take my blessing. Interesting that he uses the word blessing. Take my blessing. Because that's what Esau was denied, right? Was a blessing. Take my blessing that was brought to you, because God has been gracious to me, and because I have everything. So he kept urging him until he accepted. So Esau refused to accept Jacob's gift, typical Middle Eastern protocol. Esau only cared about material things. But when Esau finally did accept Jacob's gifts, this is what it meant. When Esau accepted the gift from Jacob, number one, it made Jacob a vassal to Esau. This confirmed that Jacob was Esau's servant. And this was an act of, this was seen as giving tribute to Esau. Like, if you have one people that conquer another people, when that people is conquered, they have to pay tribute to the ones that conquered them. It's like paying taxes. And so with Jacob giving to Esau, it showed Jacob that it was in total submission, that Jacob was conquered, that uh, this was sort of like seen as tribute or possibly kind of reparations. Hey, you, you're the one who stole my blessing. You're the one who stole my birthright. So I deserve this anyway. So it was kind of like reparations. Number two, 
by Esau uh, accepting these gifts, it, uh, it convinces Esau not to harm Jacob. Now, Esau is, is supposedly obligated not to harm Jacob. By accepting Jacob's gifts, it's saying, okay, you found favor in my eyes. Okay, I, take, I accept your tribute. Okay, I will not harm you. So supposedly, this meant that, that Esau wasn't allowed to harm Jacob in any way. All right, moving on to verse 12. Then he said... Uh, let's journey and be on our way, and I'll go ahead of you. So this is Esau speaking. He continued, My Lord knows that the children are tender, and that the flocks and the cattle in my care are nursing. So if they were pushed hard just one day, all of the flocks would die. Please let my Lord pass on ahead of your servant, and I'll move on further gradually at a pace suited for the livestock that are before me and at a pace suited to the children until I come to my Lord in Seir, which is where Esau lived. That was his territory. All right, so this is interesting here. Verses 12 through 15 we just read. The ruse was established. In other words, hey, I'm totally cool with you, Jacob. You don't have to worry about a thing. I've accepted your gifts. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to harm you. Actually, I want you to be my special guest I want you to come to my territory, into my tents, and we're going to have a big old, good old family reunion. So the, so the ruse was established, and the trap Esau thought was set. Esau wanted to weaken Jacob's animals, uh, therefore weakening Jacob's wealth. Esau knew that if the animals were driven too hard, that they would die, that the weak would be picked off. And that was a way of further depleting Jacob of his, of his wealth. So it would ruin, it would, it would set to ruin Jacob's future. Uh, so if, if Esau couldn't have it, then he didn't want Jacob to have it either. If he couldn't have it, then he doesn't want anybody to have it. Esau also wanted to weaken the family uh, so that they would be easy pickings for attack. So by this time, some of the older children, the, some of the ones that were born to Leah and, and, and the concubine, they were probably old enough to put up a good fight. They were probably, some of them were warrior age. But if they traveled hard and fast, and especially the younger ones, they would have been too weak to resist or to fight back if there was an attack made. So this was kind of Esau's plan in the back of his head to possibly weaken the family and at the right time spring on them and attack and extinguish the family line. This might have been Satan's way to try to extinguish the messianic line because we know that Judah was among the children. We know Judah is the ancestor of Yeshua the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And if he could kill Judah, that would have taken care of the Messiah right there. Esau wanted to leave his men uh, with Jacob to ensure that the deed would be done and that the plan would be carried out. But Jacob, he didn't trust Esau and he refused these escorts. So it says in verse 15, then Esau said, please let me leave with you some of my people or some of the people who are with me, some of these 400 men, that's not a welcoming committee at all, but just trained warriors. <laughs> please let me leave with you some of the people who are with me 
But he said, what's this? Let me find favor in my Lord's eyes. Jacob's like, wait a second, don't you trust me? I thought we've already established some rapport here, some trust here. With all the gifts I've given you, with all the submission I've shown, with all the respect of the lingo I've given you, calling you Lord and calling myself your servant, et cetera, et cetera. No, 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 if you truly trust me and you truly you know, uh, accepted my gifts, therefore saying you won't harm me, I don't need these guys. So, you know, Jacob smelt something fishy. He knew that something wasn't right. So uh, Esau intended to leave his men behind to pick off the family after Esau had left. And Jacob kind of knew this, and he didn't trust these men. So he's like, no, 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 no. If I've truly found favor in your sight, just trust me. We're going to go at our own pace. So Jacob basically reminds Esau of his promise from verses 10 and 11 by accepting the gifts he accepted that Esau had forgiven him, that Esau was not going to hurt him or harm him. So he's holding Esau to his supposed word by the gifts he's accepted. So um, verse 16. So on that day, Esau returned on his way to Seir. Esau leaves, assuming that Jacob will follow, and Jacob sees his chance to escape this close call. Jacob knew Esau wasn't truly repentant um, or he wasn't completely over the, the issue of the birthright and the blessing thing. Jacob knew Esau still was a toxic person, and this was Jacob's chance to cut Esau off permanently. And if you remember the lesson on toxic people, sometimes we as believers, sometimes we as Christians or Messianic believers, we feel obligated to continue to keep people in our life because it's like, oh, we've got to minister to them. Oh, we've got to witness to them. Oh, we've got to lead them to Jesus. Not necessarily. If they're a toxic person and all they're doing is draining you, being like a spiritual vampire and draining you of all your time, your money, your resources, taking advantage of you, and they're doing nothing but causing harm, drama, and trouble in your life, there is, there's, no, there, there's no reason to keep them in your life. Yes, God loves them just as much as you love them, but God's Holy Spirit is at work in their life. Didn't sometimes Paul say, I'm delivering this dude over to Satan to be tormented so he'll learn a lesson? He's a toxic person. I'm cutting him off of this congregation. I'm cutting him out of my ministry. I'm cutting him out of my life, trusting that the Holy Spirit's going to do what the Holy Spirit's going to do. And so it's not wrong to cut toxic people out of our life. We've got, to, we've got to safeguard not only ourselves, our mental health, our spiritual health, but that of our family. And if they're just causing drama and trouble and taking advantage of our kindness, then there's no reason to keep them around. And this is the way Jacob seen Esau. He saw this was his chance to, to cut him off permanently. So as Esau and his men left to go to Seir, Esau's territory, Jacob totally went in the opposite direction. He says, this is my chance to get away. He never made it to Esau's camp. He never had you know, a family reunion or a meal with Esau. Um, now, it's interesting that in the apocryphal and pseudepigraphal books, we do see that Jacob and Esau meet one last time. And again, this is not canonical, so I'm not saying that this for sure happened because it's not scripture, but this is the legends and the traditions from the apocryphal, pseudepigraphal literature and Judaism that Esau's sons provoked Esau to get back at Jacob, saying, Dad, what are we doing in this desert place? You're the firstborn. Here, Jacob is thriving. You need, to get, you need to take what's yours. 
So they incited Esau to go and attack uh, Jacob and his 12 sons. Now, by, by this time, his 12 sons were grown men. And there was a great battle and a great war between Esau's family and Jacob's family. And it says that Jacob finally, reluctantly, only to save his own life because it was either kill or be killed, Jacob drew an arrow and notched it and pulled back the bow and shot Esau through with a bow, with an arrow, and killed him. Again, take that for what it's worth. I'm not saying it really happened. We don't know for sure, but that's just part of the traditional uh, narrative. So they did, you know, if, if that's true, they did meet one last time. And, and unfortunately, Esau, you know, found his demise. And we see the same thing that happened with all the others that tried to harm God's people. You know, Cain didn't have a very good end. You know, uh, um, uh, all these people that were against the, the chosen seed didn't have a good end. Um, all right. Moving on to verse 18. Uh, no, skip, skip some here. Let's go to 17. But Jacob journeyed to Sukkot. Now, Sukkot means booths. Sukkot means huts. And Sukkot means tabernacles. This is where we get the feast. Uh, this is the name where the feast uh, tabernacles comes from, the Feast of Tabernacles. In Hebrew, we call it Sukkot. It's kind of like the Hebraic version of Thanksgiving. But Jacob journeyed to Sukkot and built a house for himself and for his livestock, and he made booths. He made Sukkah. He made Sukkot. He made booths. That is the reason why the place is called Sukkot, because booths and Sukkot are the same word. Uh, okay. Verse 18. So Jacob arrived in Shalom. He arrived in peace to the city of Shechem. Notice when Jacob decided to cut Esau out of his life because he was a toxic person, that was the only time that Jacob finally found peace. I don't have to worry about my older brother anymore. I've let him go. I've cut him loose. I've had my encounter. There was some closure there. I don't have to worry about him anymore. So Jacob arrived in peace to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Paddan Aram and camped right before, right in front of the city. Okay. Verse 19. He purchased the portion of the field where he had pitched his tent from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, uh, for 100 pieces of money. And it's, it was probably silver. That was probably what was used. Because the word money does mean silver. Uh, there he set up an altar and called it El Elohe Yisrael. Okay, so we have Abraham purchasing a place called Machpelah, the field of Machpelah from the sons of, of Heth. And that uh, he, he bought the land, the field, and the forest that came with that cave, and he used that cave as a family burial plot. That's where Sarah was buried. That's where everybody else in the family was buried. Now. That is an undisputed, legally recognized, undeniable uh, kind of planting your flag in the land of Israel. God had promised it, promised it to us, promised it to our people. So this, I'm planting my flag here. This is, this is legal tender. This is the first place that God said, yep, from here you're going to conquer. Now, we go to Jacob. Jacob also buys a field, a field of Shechem by, uh, with the Hammerites. Now, this symbolizes the digging in of two heels. 
This symbolizes two fronts. And basically, this was from two fronts where the land was going to be conquered from the outside in, in the future. Now, Shechem was in the northwest, and Machpelah was in the southeast. And these were undisputed purchases, so they were opposite. So, like, when you're, whenever you're going to fight, you're just not going to stand at attention straight as a board because somebody can come up to you and push you down because you don't have a good center of gravity. But if you spread your feet apart in a, what's called a horse stance, it's going to be harder for the person to knock you down. So having these two places opposite each other, one in the northwest, one in the southeast, it was as if, spiritually speaking, Jacob was getting in the fighting stance because he knew in the future that the children of Israel were going to conquer the land and they were going to conquer it from these two fronts from the inside out. That's the best way to get an enemy is you surround the enemy and close in on them and they have nowhere to run and nowhere to go. We see this tactic in, in Judges when Gideon surrounded you know, those people all around and come in on them and totally destroyed them. Uh, now it's interesting that this 100 pieces of silver... We don't know for sure if it was really 100 because sometimes that Hebrew word for 100 is rendered 1,100. But most translations uh, will say 100 pieces of silver. Now, this Shechem, uh, this was the first place that Abraham stopped in Canaan. And at that time, when Abraham stopped in Shechem, it wasn't a city like it was when Jacob encountered it. You know, the city of Shechem didn't exist in Abraham's day. So a lot had changed between Abraham to Jacob. So when Jacob came to Shechem and decided to settle there and, and, and uh, buy the land and, and create the place called Sukkot uh, for 100 pieces of silver, uh, he built an altar there. An altar, an altar was a place of worship. It was a place of thanksgiving to acknowledge God that he protected him from Esau, that he kept his promises because he said, Jacob, if you trust me, I'm going to bring you back to this land one day, which is exactly what happened. So the altar was to praise God for his protection and for keeping his promises. Now, the name of the altar was El Elohe Yisrael. And usually it's translated God, the God of Israel. El is the Hebrew generic term for God. Uh, you know, it, it could be uppercase G, lowercase G. It just means God. And God is not a name. God is a title. You know, uh, you know, like Pastor Chris. Pastor is not my name. Pastor is my title. Chris is my name. You know, so God is a title. Yahweh is his name. So it says El Elohe Israel, God, the God of Israel. This word Elohe does mean God, but it means so much more. It means the mighty God. It means the supreme God. God, the mighty supreme God of Israel. See, this is one of the first instances where Jacob is using his new name. And if you'll read in Scripture, Jacob goes back and forth between Jacob and Israel. Sometimes he's called Jacob, sometimes he's called Israel. Whenever, whenever Jacob is acting in the flesh, whenever Jacob is acting fearfully, the scriptures will render it Jacob. But whenever Jacob is trusting God and operating in the spirit, you'll see the name Israel. I think it's kind of interesting when you read it, read it in that way. So Israel was not only Jacob's new name, it was also the future nation. That was going to come from him through the 12 tribes. Now, this place, this place called Shechem, is what would be in Jesus' day, Samaria. So I want to go to John 
chapter 4, and we'll close out our lesson here. John chapter 4. So this is where Yeshua, Jesus, offers the living water to the lady of Samaria. It says, now Yeshua knew that the Pharisees heard that he was ma making and immersing more disciples, baptizing more disciples than John. Um, although Yeshua himself was not immersing, his disciples were. So he left Judea and went back again to the Galilee, but he needed to pass through Samaria. Now, Samaria was avoided by Jews at all costs. They took a, a very inconvenient detour to get around Samaria in order to get to where they were going, whether it be Jerusalem or wherever it was. But Jesus is like, nope, I'm going straight through. And his disciples are like, are you sure? We're Jews. They don't like us. I mean, they could rob us, mug us. Anything can happen. No, no, we're going. We're going straight through. It's a straight shot. It's the most logical way to get to where we're going. But he needed to pass through Samaria, so he comes to a Samaritan town called Shechem. Dun da da da. There's our Old Testament. There's our Old Testament connection there. So he comes to Shechem, near the plot of land that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Hey, buddy. Good. Jacob's well was there. So Yeshua, exhausted from the journey, and I love this because this shows Jesus' humanity. Yeah, he was the son of God, but he was dwelling in a human body. It got tired. It got sick. It got thirsty like all of us do. So Yeshua, exhausted from his journey, was sitting by the well, and it was midday, noon, high noon, the hottest part of the day, right? A Samaritan woman, uh, now a Samaritan was a half-breed. They were half-Jewish, half-another race right? They were looked down upon by the Jewish people because they had a form of Judaism, but it was like a little bit different. And so they're like, okay, these aren't legitimate Jews. This isn't the legitimate way to worship God. So they were ostracized. Huh? Well, that's like with every people group. There's always people in every group that looks down on somebody else. Doesn't matter if you're black, white, Indian, French, you know, there's good and bad in every group. So yeah, there's Jewish people that don't, that still don't, they're still prejudiced, still don't like other people. Um, so it says, the, um, a Samaritan woman comes to draw water. Give me a drink, Yeshua tells her. Boy, Jesus is busting down cultural barriers and social barriers. An Orthodox Jewish man was not to talk to the opposite sex. They didn't talk to women. They barely talked to their own wives. You know, uh, and let alone being seen by themselves with a woman. So a Samaritan woman comes to draw water. Give me a drink, Yeshua tells her. This probably shocked the pants off of this woman. For his disciples had gone away into town to buy food. Then the Samaritan woman tells him, huh, wait a second. How is it that you, a Jew, asks me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? Not only is it a racial barrier he's breaking down, it's a cultural barrier he's breaking down and a religious barrier he's breaking down. Um, Yeshua replied, oh, says, for Jewish people don't deal with the Samaritans. Yeshua replied to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman tells him, you don't have a bucket and the well is deep. Uh, then from where do you get this living water? 
You're not greater than our father Jacob. So the Samaritans claim Jacob as their father, as their patriarch, as their relative. Are you? He gave us this well. He drank out of it himself with his sons and his cattle. Yeshua replied to her, everyone who drinks from this well will get thirsty again. There's nothing special about this water. It's H2O like any other water, right? But whoever drinks the water that I will give him shall never be thirsty. That water I give him will become fountains of water within him, springing up into eternal life. Now, usually women would go early in the morning or late in the evening to get water because they were cooler parts of the day. They would go early in the morning so they'd have enough water for their family and to cook with. They would go in the evening so they would have some for the next day or to bathe or what have you. The reason the Samaritan woman came by herself is because, oh, she was a, a woman of ill repute. She was a hussy. She, you know, that's the old way to put it, right? That's kind of a nicer way to put it, too. Could have said something else. But, you know, if you read on in that chapter, she's had many, many men. And the man that she's living with currently, they're not even married. So he was breaking also down a stigmatic barrier. Because, I mean, my goodness, a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi, an Orthodox Jewish rabbi, talking to this slut, this prostitute, this whore, this, this, this hussy? Could you imagine the rumors that would spread when people see this? Whoa, what is Jesus? Even his disciples come back and they're like, hey, what is he doing talking to this woman? They didn't, they, they didn't dare ask him, but they, they wondered amongst themselves, well, what in the world is he doing talking to this woman? So we see how the Old Testament in Genesis 33 relates to John 4 and how this land of Shechem that Yeshua eventually enters and brings redemption. Because if you finish that chapter in John 4, the Samaritans end up loving him and accepting Jesus. And he stayed there a couple days teaching them and having a good time with them and really made some headway with the, with the, with the Samaritan people. And he used Samaritans quite a bit in his teaching, especially the good Samaritan. The person that you would expect not to be a good guy, the person that you would expect not to do the right thing did the right thing, and the person that you expect to do the right thing didn't do the right thing. This guy was mugged and left half dead on the road to Jericho, a very dangerous road where bandits hit out quite a bit. And this Samaritan man helped this Jewish guy that was left half dead. It wasn't the priest. It wasn't the Levi that passed the same way and saw that. They stepped on the other side. I'm not getting involved. They were obligated by Torah to do the right thing, regardless if they had a duty at the temple at the time. But no, it wasn't the Levites, the guys you would expect to do the right thing. It was the Samaritan, that old dirty half-breed, that half-breed Jew, those deceivers, those liars, those cultic kooks who live in Samaria and say that's the place to worship. These, they don't, you know, that's the way the Jews thought of them at that time. And it was the Samaritan that did the good deed to the Jewish guy that was left half-dead. So Jesus was always promoting breaking down of stigmatic and racial and religious barriers all through his life. So I think that's just a beautiful way to end uh, this lesson on Genesis 33. So um, next time we meet up, uh, we'll go to Genesis 34. So let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for, for your word, how it, there's continuity to it. That it's not, you know, that's not Old Testament, New Testament that's totally disconnected. That there is a golden thread of connectivity throughout the what we call the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's one book. It links together. It joins together. It makes sense. 
And we just, you know, drew from Genesis 33 and reached all the way to John 4 and brought these two places together, this place of Shechem, this place of Samaria, and saw how it is relevant back then and in Jesus's time and even today. And so, Lord, we thank you and we praise you for that. So, Lord, help us to not only to retain, but to recall what we've learned. Help us to chew on it through the week, uh, to gain more from it, and be able to share it with someone else and maybe increase our Sunday school class as a result. We love you and we praise you and ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen.